prosperity that God wants for us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Some people have completely twisted this verse to suggest that Jesus died on the cross to make us financially rich. This idea is abhorrent to us, but on the other hand, Jesus did tell us that he came to this earth so that we would have life and have it abundantly. So what does it all mean? Does he or doesn't he want us to be rich? To answer this, we have to stop being immature in our understanding of the Bible. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We must conclude then that in the death of Jesus, we are made complete and fulfilled. This is the true definition of rich, plentiful, abundant. Jesus is promising us utter and complete contentment. That's true wealth. Well, good morning. And this Easter Sunday morning, we actually are concluding a series that we've been working on for the past four weeks. It's the fifth week and the final week, and it's Prosperity 101. Um, before, we, before we tackle this last message, I, I tried an experiment. I wanted to find out uh, what Google would produce if I punched the word Easter into the search engine under images. So yeah, here's what I discovered. Um, cute little bunny rabbits. I found uh, beautifully painted Easter eggs. Uh, in, in all, there was probably about 415 or more, plus or minus, uh, images. And uh, interestingly, this is about all the images it produced. It was just all sort of non-Christian kind of images. as bunny rabbits, tulips, flowers, um, and some very strange, very strange images came up. Uh, for instance, this Easter greeting. I have no idea what this means, and if anybody can figure it out, I'll give you 10 bucks. I have no idea what this is. Um, but nevertheless, it's an Easter greeting. Here's another one. Two uh, rabbits on a couple of roosters about to have a, a duel, again, uh, with best Easter wishes. <laughs> no idea what it means. And this is my favorite. Two babies smashing eggs with, with real hammers. Again, no idea. So 400, over 415 images and only maybe, maybe 10 pictures with a cross in there. Uh, that gave you a hint at something Christian. Well, I don't know if you know it or not, but Easter is really all about Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. And before we go further, I just want to say thank you to the choir for for absolutely beautiful number and uh, to Marilyn Wedlake small group who did all the decorating. Absolutely beautiful. Yes, thank you so much. So we look at these pictures and we think, what on earth does any of this have to do with Easter? And um, I, I'll have to leave that uh, in, with you because I really don't know. But you might also wonder, what on earth does prosperity have to do with Easter? And we've been talking about this for the last number of weeks. And in order for us to really get a handle on this, to understand what does prosperity have to do to, with Easter, we have to look at our theme first uh, over the past five weeks. And it goes like this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So, 
What does Prosperity 101 have to do with Easter? Well, he made us rich by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. I want to show you that this morning. I want to show you how God has made us rich through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. This morning, as most of you know, there are Christians and churches around the globe who are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gloria and I had the privilege of living in Greece for four and a half years, and if you are familiar with Greece, you know that they've got a rich religious tradition of the Greek Orthodox Church. And what they would say on Easter Sunday is Christos uh, Anesti, which is Greek for Christ has risen, and everybody would respond, he has risen indeed. So I'd like us to try that this morning. Would you just stand with me? And I'd like you to tell the person beside you, Christ has risen, and the person will answer, he has risen indeed. So go ahead and try that out. Everybody's had a chance to say it. Christ has risen. Christ has risen. Let's try it one more time. Christ is risen. Okay, thank you. That's pretty good. You may be seated. But I've got to tell you, the Greeks are far better at it than you are. <laughs> uh, one of the things we see uh, on, Christ, on Easter, Easter Sunday morning is a great deal of laughing, of celebrating and rejoicing, lots of smiles and fun. Um, I see a few people smiling this morning. Uh, maybe some have just woke up and you're just getting the sleep out of your eyes yet. But try giving the person beside you a big smile, a big Easter smile for them. And I hope you don't have anything in your teeth. Okay. Good. We're all smiling. We're all happy. Good. Now, why, why do we celebrate? Why do we rejoice? And it's, you know, it's, not, it's not just because you got a chocolate Easter bunny for, for Easter. It's because of the effect that the resurrection has had on us as individuals and upon the whole world. And so, if anybody asks you, hey, you, you, I hear you're a Christian, can you tell me why you're a Christian? And why do you celebrate Easter? And really, what is the resurrection really all about? I want to direct you to a verse, one of the very first verses I ever learned and ever memorized, and it goes like this, John 10.10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Who's the thief? Say it again. And Jesus says, say it with me, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Folks, death leaves us so hopeless. And the thing that we know and that we teach at our church and has been taught for 2,000 years is that Satan is a thief. He wants to steal the very best from you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage, your family, your business, your career. He wants to destroy your health. Whatever he can, he wants to destroy it. And, and in some ways, he leads you to make bad decisions and, and make wrong choices that leaves you uh, in this place of destruction and disaster. And then ultimately, what Satan wants to do is he wants to just kill you off. In fact, that has been the universal experience for all of us. At we all die, and the, the, the thing is this, is that we don't like to actually admit that. We don't like to talk about it. We use euphemisms. We don't want to say somebody, he died. We want to say, well, he passed away, or he's gone to a better place, or he's no longer with us. We don't want to actually say what the facts are. I want you to see that Jesus has got no problem making it clear to us what it is that Satan does. He's a killer, he's a thief, and he destroys. That is who he is. 
The good news, folks, is that it doesn't end there. For some people, that's all they know. For some people, they have never yet discovered the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to change their lives, to reverse what Satan has done in them. When I was just about five or six years old, we got word that my uncle had passed away. It was our Uncle Noble, my dad's, actually my dad's uncle, was my great uncle. We loved Uncle Noble. He always laughed, always smiling, was always teasing us. He loved to put us on his, on his knee and, and bounce us and played a game called Hobbly G. Has anybody ever heard of Hobbly G? Just, well, just be my family, my brother and my sisters and our kids. We're the only ones that know that game. But it was on our knee, and then all of a sudden he spread his legs. We fall. Oh, just we just go over and over and over. We love that uncle. Uncle Noble was an amazing uncle. And then one day while he was watching wrestling, he got a little too excited about watching the wrestling match, and he had a heart attack, and he died instantly. Now, I gotta tell you, uh, I had no idea what death was. I didn't understand it. Uh, I knew it was something bad because my dad was crying, and my mom was crying, and my grandmother was crying, my grandmother's brother, everybody was crying. I knew that it was a terrible thing. And my mom and dad took us out of school, and we went to the funeral. And I can remember uh, when they opened up the casket, I wasn't expecting this. It really shocked the daylights out of me. I saw my uncle just laying there, just, could just see his head, s- still lifeless. And I looked at him, I, I cried, I was shaken. Uh, I-, I would say that was probably my first or my earliest recollection in terms of memories from my childhood. That's the one I remember the best, being in that in that funeral parlor and looking at my uncle and thinking, this is so irreversible. This is so irreversible. This is so hopeless. Again, I'm just six or seven years old. But feeling so distraught, feeling so hopeless and empty and wondering, what could this life really be all about if this is all we've got to look forward to? Now, I understand now that that, that that funeral service that I attended was actually a turning point in my life, which is, a, which is really an odd thing to say about a six-year-old having a turning point in his life. But I knew that there had to be more. I knew that this, this, this did, wasn't right. It didn't feel right. I didn't like it. I hated it. And I believe that God began to stir in my heart so that when the time came, to hear the truth, I was prepared and willing to receive it. I wanted, I wanted answers. At age eight, my, grand, my, my mother took us uh, to Christian Service Brigade, a program for boys. And um, at just eight years of age, I gave my heart to Jesus. And one of the things we had to do in the CSB, the Christian Service Brigade program, is we had to memorize scripture verses. And would you believe it that this is one of the very first scripture verses I ever memorized? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. This is the NLT version. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. God began to stir in my heart. I began to understand that Jesus had something to offer that this world could not give. And I wanted that. I wanted the Jesus who could actually reverse what Satan had done to my uncle. 
The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I've come to reverse all that. I've come to change all that. And I want the Spirit of God to speak to your heart this morning. Because some of you are sitting here and you think to yourself, man, my life is a disaster. I'm in so much trouble. I've got so many problems. I've got so much difficulty. I've got such big marriage problems. I've got such big family problems. I've got such big health problems. I want you to know today that when you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, it begins a transformation process. Where what Satan has, has destroyed you, Jesus can turn that around. Jesus conquers death. That's what this morning is all about. It's an empty cross. And we put that before you to remind you that, that this is not the end. It was the beginning. Jesus died on the cross to wash away your sins and my sins. Or that is, everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to wash away your guilt, your shame, and to give you a fresh start. We like to call it a new life. In fact, the Apostle Paul, one of the prolific writers of the New Testament, he says that, that everybody who puts his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ is a brand new creation. Did you get that? You are a new creation. Would you say it with me? I am a new creation. Ready? I am a new creation. The way that that happens, folks, is through what Jesus Christ has done. Some of you have been here for a baptismal service, and what we do when we baptize people is, in, in our tradition, is we, 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 for lack of a better word, we dunk you. We, we put you right under. And when you come up again, that, that symbolizes the resurrection. The old you is buried, and then the new you is resurrected from the dead. And so you can literally say, if you are a Christian today, you can say, I am a new creation. Alan Duncalf can say, I am a new creation. And I can tell you when the old Alan died. I died when I was eight years old. I'm a new creation today because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, Jesus resurrected me from a spiritual death. And I am now what we call born again. But folks, it gets better. Because not only does Jesus give us eternal life, he gives us this rich and satisfying life, this abundant life. The Bible is clear that when we start living the way that Jesus has called us to live, when we start doing what he tells us to do, it's not to, not to burden us with a load of rules, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, but rather Jesus, like a coach, can I use that analogy? Like a coach, he tells us what to do and what not to do in order to have this rich and satisfying life. Some people have this notion that Jesus is some sort of a cosmic party pooper. He wants to just destroy your fun. Far from it. Jesus wants to give you life. He wants you to enjoy that rich and satisfying life. And so we see that new life. Rich and satisfying, abundant life. And of course, eternal life. I remember going to my grandmother after my Uncle Noble died. That would be her brother. And crying and sobbing, my grandma wrapped her arms around me. And she said, Alan, it's okay. It's okay. Because we're going to see him again. What do you mean, Grandma, we're going to see her? Does she know something? I don't know. Is there some kind of a trick? What's going on here? 
And my grandma informed me that Uncle Noble loved Jesus and put his faith in Christ. She informed me that someday we were going to see him in heaven. And as my grandmother got older, she would talk about the fact that someday she's going to go, go to heaven and she's going to see her mother again. and going to see her son who died before, Uncle Jack, who was a missionary in Africa, died very young. She's going to go see her brother, Noble, and, and various family members. Folks, that is our hope, the hope of eternity. You know, when I put my faith in Jesus as, as a young boy and learned, started to learn how to trust Jesus and how to live the way Jesus wanted me to live, it really re revolutionized my life. Now, can I just remind everybody of something this morning? Because some people think, you know, Pastor, I put my faith in Jesus once and I'm still having troubles. Look, at, can I just remind you of something? We're still living on planet Earth where there is lots of evil, lots of destruction, lots of killing, lots of robbing. We're still living on this planet where we experience temptation and sometimes, quite frankly, we fail the test. But the good news is that you have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you and who helps you to live the life that he's called you to live. Jesus is my purpose my purpose, the reason I came to this earth was to help people find a rich and satisfying life. Do you know when my parents started going to church, my sister became a Christian, and I became a Christian, and, and my, my mom and dad, they were, I guess, influenced by us, and my, my other siblings started following Christ, and my whole family started going to church regularly, and it was, it was life-transforming. Our family began to experience a level of prosperity that we had never known before because my parents now were living according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. It was life-transforming. Folks, all of this is made possible because of our faith in the living Jesus Christ and in the resurrection. Now, here's what you need to understand today. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. If you knock out the resurrection, if somehow you could prove that the resurrection did not happen, then the Christian faith crumbles. It falls apart. It collapses. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 17. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Did you get that? If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have a faith. We've got nothing. We are back to square one. And Paul says we are still guilty of our sins. Our sins are not washed away. Folks, today I want you to know that I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead Without the resurrection, my friends, there is no Christianity. There's no new life. There's no rich and satisfying life, no abundant life. There's no eternal life. It means not only am I left in my own sin, in my own shame and guilt, not only that, I am, I've got no hope of eternity. And that means I'm never going to see my loved ones again. If there is no resurrection, then the best thing for you to do is just to stay home. Don't bother. Give up, because it's all a waste of time. 
Do you want to know something? On that Easter Sunday morning, that's exactly what the apostles did. They gave up. They stayed home. The one that they'd followed for three years was dead after all. He was in a tomb. They saw it themselves. What's the use? Why not just quit? Why not just give up? For them, their life had lost meaning. For three years, in the presence of the man of Galilee, Jesus Christ, their life had meaning, it had purpose. People were saved and healed, and people were raised from the dead, and lives were transformed, and they, the people of Israel heard the most amazing teaching that they'd ever heard in the history of Israel, and now suddenly he's gone, and confusion and grief reigns in the hearts of these disciples. Hope has died. Do you know, without Christ, hope is dead. They hardly have a reason to go on. But then there were two women who were also disciples of Jesus. They weren't one of the 12, but they were definitely disciples of Jesus. These women have been touched by God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, said it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's literally what it says, the other Mary. So Mary and Mary, they say to themselves, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And the Mary says to the other Mary, when he was alive, he met our every need. When he was alive, he gave us hope, a purpose, a reason to live. Let's go to the place where he lays. Let's go to his tomb. And so while all the apostles are hiding, have run away, staying home, given up, these women decide they're going to go to the tomb. They're going to try to find Jesus, at least be in the presence of his body. And so there they go. They had no idea. Or did they? Jesus had given them so much hope. These women who were outcasts, these women who were known as terrible sinners, without hope, they went to the tomb. And I think in the heart of hearts, they wondered if just maybe, just maybe something, something special would happen. And then what happens, folks, is they heard the voice of an angel who uttered the sweetest words that have ever been spoken on this earth. He isn't here. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was laying. Wow. Then the angel said, go and tell the apostles and the women. You can imagine the joy in their hearts and the wonder. They ran like crazy to see if they could find those cowardly apostles. Where are these men? Men. They find Peter, and Peter just gets a whiff of it, and he is off like a shot. He runs to the tomb. He finds that it's empty. And his heart is filled with wonder. 
as he finally comes face to face with the teacher, Jesus. And he falls on his face before Jesus and cries out, Rabbi, Rabboni. Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning, some people think, you know, I don't believe in this stuff. I mean, CNN, after all, has given us all kinds of documentaries to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right? And CNN is never wrong. Right? Everybody say amen to that. CNN is never wrong. Ever. They always get it right, every single time. You know what? I've been in the ministry for over 30 years. I have seen so many books and documentaries on the subject. I can tell you that Christian scholars get a hold of it and they can refute it all without, without a problem. But I have to admit something to you. There are times, times when I see things that don't add up to me. Things I've prayed about. I've cried out to God. God, where are you? Why aren't you hearing my prayer? Why aren't you answering? God, what's going on? Are you still there? And I find at those moments, Satan whispers, whispers in my ear, and he says to me, it's all a farce, Alan. You've given your whole life to just a load of nonsense. It's not true. Satan whispers in my ear, it's a waste. You could have been doing other things, but you wasted your life. There's no resurrection. Is there a God? Have you ever had those thoughts? Has Satan ever come along and whispered those ideas into your head? I asked my friend in England, he's a pastor as well, and my mentor. I said, do you ever have feelings like that? And without even, without even a thought, without a, a hesitation, he answered, of course, Alan. Every pastor has those thoughts. And he mentioned a number of very, very, very famous theologians and pastors that I know that had the same thoughts. What do you do when you have thoughts like that? What you have to do, folks, you have to stay, take a step back and look at the big picture. We call it getting perspective. And that's what I've learned to do in those moments when Satan tries to tempt me to not believe. I step back and I take a look at the power of the gospel in the world over the last 2,000 years. I look at the global effect that Christ and his resurrection has had on this world. And first of all, let me say this. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, do you really think that a lie like this could be perpetrated for 2,000 years? If it was a religion that was self-serving, then yes, you could see it easily being you could see it being uh, carried on from generation to generation to generation. But this is a religion that asks you to, to give and to make sacrifices and to lay down your life. In fact, if you look at the early church, you'll find that the early apostles, most of them, all but one, died a martyr's death. Who on earth is going to die a martyr for a lie? You can just see in that moment, when your life is in danger, you say, okay, okay, I give, I give. You're right, it's a lie, I, I was wrong. Now can I go? 
Every one of them died. Who dies for a lie? But even more than that, you have to look at the effects that Jesus' teaching has had on believers throughout the centuries. This verse that we've been looking at for the past five weeks, it has a context. The Apostle Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing the great need in Jerusalem, amongst the, the Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, look at guys, the Jerusalem church is suffering famine. They are in a terrible state and they need our help. And so the Apostle Paul was literally going to all the churches in Macedonia throughout the Roman Empire, wherever there was a church established, and he was appealing for money to help the poor brothers in Jerusalem. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Nothing like this had ever happened in the history of humanity. What happened, folks, is that the Apostle Paul set in motion a movement where Christians reach out and help hurting and broken people. And Jesus says, look it, I have sacrificed myself. I have died in order to make you rich so that you can do what I'm doing. Jesus wants to prosper you today, my friend, so that you in turn can go and bless and prosper others. But if the prosperity stops at you folks, then I'm going to tell you the prosperity will dry up. If God can trust you with a little, then the Bible says that God can trust you with a lot. And Jesus says, look, I become poor to make you rich so that you in turn now can reach out and help those who are in need. Folks, that is real Christianity. It's not about filling my pockets, but rather it's about me becoming a channel of God's blessing to a broken and hurting world. That is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It transforms people, people who have come in full surrender to Christ. Few would argue that Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure of Western civilization for the past 20 centuries. Jesus Christ and the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the church has literally transformed Western culture. Few people would deny that. Jesus has had more impact on the world, some would say, than any other individual. And I want to just point out a few ways that Jesus Christ has impacted this world and made it a better place. Can I just remind you as I share some of these things that the great good that Christianity has done in this world is being done by people who believe in the resurrected Jesus, who have come face to face and have discovered Jesus for themselves. Let's, let's take women, for instance. Women were treated not as equals to men. In fact, throughout the centuries, women were treated as the property of men. A woman was the property of the father. The father called the shots. And in many cultures, many societies, a daughter could be put to death if she disobeyed her father and said, no, Dad, I don't want to do that. I don't want to marry that guy. And after a woman was married, she could, she, uh, she could do just about anything she wanted to do as long as her husband said she could. In other words, she became the property of her husband. 
Jesus comes along and he reverses the trend. We find Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And the disciples are shocked out of their mind because not only was, she talking, was he talking to a woman, but this woman was a Samaritan. She wasn't even Jewish. And Jesus treated her with dignity and respect. In fact, Jesus spoke into her life and gave her the living water. She was so touched and so moved by what Jesus had to say to her that she gave her life to Christ. In fact, she went back to her town and told the whole town, and everybody then came to hear the master. Jesus treated women as equals. This notion, this idea that women are equal to men, that is uniquely a Christian idea. What about children? Children were not even considered people. It's hard to believe that. There's so much we take for granted. Children were not even considered people. And when, when parents brought their children to Jesus, the disciples were saying, get those kids away. He's got more important things to do. Treated them like they're animals. But what does Jesus say? Hang on a minute here. Let those little children come to me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is introducing new ideas. You can see why everybody wants to listen to every word he's got to say. And the church, ever since, has, proclaiming, has been proclaiming the worth of children. One scholar wrote in his study, entitled, When Children Became People, the Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Up until this point, children are nothing. That is the effect of the resurrection. That is what the resurrection produced. Education. The notion that every child bore God's image helped fuel the move for universal literacy. The church has been on a mission for 2,000 years to help everybody read and write. Why? So that children, so that people of all ages could read for themselves the word of God and learn the truth that would set them free. This move to educate the world is a uniquely Christian idea. You're saying, Pastor Allen, other religions do that too. But yeah, yes, but where did it come from? Where did it begin? Universities such as Cambridge and, and Harvard and Oxford they began, they were Jesus-inspired efforts to love God with one's whole mind. In fact, the first legislation to publicly fund education in, in the United States colonies goes back several hundred years ago. And the, the legislation was called this. It was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. In other words, to, in order to counteract the effects that Satan had on a generation, the fathers, the forefathers said, we need to educate them. We need to teach them the word of God. Because God doesn't want any children to be ignorant. That's the heritage of our Christian faith. Here's something else that might surprise you. The idea of forgiving people. The first female professor at Princeton University claims that, quote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
The idea of forgiving other people was a foreign idea. Nobody forgave. What do we do? It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. I'm not forgiving you. I'm getting even. I'm getting revenge. Jesus comes along and teaches a brand new way of living, a brand new way of thinking. And I'm going to tell you, folks, it has touched and influenced our culture in ways that we cannot even imagine. And then humility. Most of us here today would say we don't really enjoy the company of arrogant people. We don't want to be around proud, arrogant, narcissistic kind of people, do we? And yet that was, that was what most people were. In fact, some of the great Greek scholars and, and, uh, and thinkers, they declared that it was good to be self-absorbed and to love yourself. One wrote a book called How to Love Yourself and, be, and, and Enjoy It. That's what it was called, How to Love Yourself and Enjoy It. Jesus comes along and says, no. That's not the best way to get along with people. That's not the best way to be loved. Jesus comes along as a foot-washing servant of humanity. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Compassion. The church has led the way, caring for widows and orphans. James says, your religion's worthless if you don't care about the poor and the needy. If you're not taking care of widows and orphans, I don't want to even talk to you. I don't want to even hear what you got to say. That's what James has to say. The Council of Nicaea decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice, a place for caring for the sick and the poor. That's the heritage, folks, of Christianity of people who worship the resurrected Jesus Christ. Who would live this way if Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead? But that's our heritage. Science. Modern-day science. Almost all of the early founders, if you want to call it that, included men such as Kepler, Boyle, Louis Pasteur, Pascal, Newton, and others who were ardent Christians, who believed with all their heart in a Jesus who rose from the dead. We could look at art and literature and music. Bach, the great composer, signed off every piece of music that he wrote and composed to the glory of God. And I could talk to you about, about uh, the economy about free enterprise and the work ethic, all inspired by Jesus Christ. I read a fantastic book about wealth in North America, and the writer of the book says the only way that wealth could be generated in North America was based on a system where people trusted each other. I want you to know something that free enterprise and capitalism was born amongst countries that put their faith in Jesus Christ, that trusted God, trusted people, and produced people who were trustworthy. And that's why we've got people from other parts of the world coming to our country, because they want to enjoy the benefits of our Christian heritage. I don't know how much longer it's going to be around, folks, but so far, it's, been, it's, it's, it's holding up. But I can't see it lasting for long. Then there's the government of the United States of America. 55 signers of the Constitution, 50 of them were 
known to be Orthodox Christians, that is, Christians that believed in God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you look at the, the actual form of government with checks and balances, the reason they put those checks and balances in place is because the, fo- the founders of the nation, the signers of the Constitution, they understood the importance of not trusting human nature. They understood the doctrine of sinfulness of mankind. And I could go on to talk about family and the marriage up until the time of Christ. Family wasn't... Nobody thought anything about it. They didn't recognize it as sacred. The church comes along and says, not only is the family sacred, but marriage is sacred. And men were taught to to be devoted to their wives, and wives were taught to be devoted to their husbands. This is the heritage, folks, of the Christian faith. The heritage of people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we... uh, We sometimes forget that Jesus Christ rose from the dead not just to give us eternal life, not just to give us abundant life, but that you and I would be used by God to bring it to others. Back when we first started the seven habits, we had some mugs made up. And and, uh, if you just take a look at that, I don't know if you can see what's wrong with that mug. Can you see, anybody see what's wrong with it? The seventh habit is missing. Does anybody know what the seventh habit is? Give. Yeah, see, the guys are making these mugs. They didn't even like the idea of giving. They, we, we, I don't know how many, how many hundreds of mugs we had to smash up and throw in the garbage because the seven habits was missing the seventh habit, which is to give. And I thought, you know what? I got to keep one mug in my office. I don't know if Taryn knew I kept one, but I, I kept one, Taryn. Because I... I saw this really as, as a symbol, if you will, of what's wrong with North American Christianity. We're willing to go to church. We believe in praying. We believe in reading our Bibles. We believe that we need to be holy. We don't mind the idea of being in a small group, and we'll even serve if, if asked. And, and we all know we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. But pastor, whatever you do, don't ask me to give. Here's what you and I need to understand today. This Christianity that you and I have embraced, this Jesus that we have embraced, is known by his giving. God our Father gave his Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gave his life. All who have put their faith in Jesus Christ also are givers. At least that's what God wants of us. What do we give? We give our time, our treasure, our talent. We give in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I've heard people say, you know, in the midst of this disaster, where's God? I'll tell you where God is. God shows up through his people. Wherever there's a tsunami, wherever there's an earthquake, wherever there's a fire, a disaster, Christians are usually among the first ones to show up to bring relief hope, and healing. Because you and I represent the hands and the feet of God. Jesus has come that we may have a rich and satisfying life. I'm going to tell you today, folks, a thing that brings you that rich and satisfying life is when you say, Lord Jesus, here am I. Use me. 
Lord Jesus, I am here to be used by you to bring light to this dark and broken and hurting world. I want to remind you on this Easter Sunday that the thing that's going to bring you joy is for you to stop living for yourself. For you to start serving the way the risen Savior served us by giving his life. Would you stand with me, please? God, we want to say thank you today for your son, Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we might have life. And God, you're calling us now as people who worship the resurrected Jesus to be a people who are just like Jesus, who go out and bring hope and healing to a broken world, to get on board using our time and our treasure and our talent in order to be a blessing to a world in darkness. That's what the resurrection's all about. It's about life. It's about bringing prosperity to a world that is in such poverty. God, we thank you today that in the resurrection there is hope for life, eternal life, abundant life, and new life. Use us, we pray, to bring that life to a broken world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, Christ is risen.